You are listening to episode 60 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. New Zealand, one of the most famously beautiful and livable countries on the planet. From its gorgeous scenery to its bustling towns and cities, it truly is a wonder to behold. But for a resident called Smith, things aren't quite so fabulous. His domestic situation has turned ugly, and so he set out on his own with the hopes of living in peace and solitude on an island off the Coromandel Peninsula. But his idyllic life is shattered when a stash of guns and explosives are unearthed by government forces, who are in the process of cracking down on civic protests, as well as squashing an increasingly violent rebellion. Based on the C.K. Steed novel from 1971, Sleeping Dogs is a rumination on oppression, fascism, martial law, and the impossible task of trying to live a simple, happy life while the land you call home falls apart around you. One would almost think we're on an around-the-world tour, Wayne. In our last three episodes, we've went The Brood, Canada, North America. We've been Submarine, Wales, the United Kingdom. And now we're doing Sleeping Dogs, New Zealand, Oceania, Wayne. Three continents, Europe, America, Oceania. To be fair, that part of the world is not totally foreign for us. We have, in the past, expressed our love of the Ausploitation genre, coming out of Australia, of course. We've talked about Australian New Wave. So it kind of makes sense that we kind of little hop over the pond to New Zealand to talk about New Zealand and New Zealand films. I think it's very fitting. I think it does fit in with what we do here. And it's not even our first New Zealand film. We did cover an early, and very early, Peter Jackson film called Bad Taste. Now, I'm not sure if that fits into Sleeping Dogs at all apart from it being New Zealand, but let's give a little run-through, Wayne, for our listeners on New Zealand. I should say this is a first-time watch for the both of us. So when you first-time watch, you divulge a bit into the research, Wayne. And I did not realise that this film was the very first New Zealand film shot on 35mm, and also the first of colour. First colour and first 35mm film in New Zealand. It was very much a watershed moment in New Zealand cinema because not only both of those things, which are major cinematic firsts, but this was also the first film from New Zealand to get major release, at least in the United States and somewhat worldwide. In fact, in New Zealand, this was like third at the box office after Rocky and A Star Is That's Born. Right. So it was mass- it's massively successful, not just domestically, but internationally. Because you think of a country like New Zealand, it's not one of those countries you hear about a lot. We hear about America all the time. We hear about parts in Europe all of the time. New Zealand is one of those countries that just doesn't get brought up very much. And there's films from New Zealand, which I didn't even realise were New Zealand films. It kind of exists in this kind of bizarre little bubble, almost kind of outside of the mainstream. But that's why it's so interesting to look at films from there, just how characteristic how different they are well it's funny you say that what constitutes for example a new zealand film and if we're talking about new zealand we're talking about peter jackson for example i mean Mm. there's an argument there is the lord of the rings trilogy are they new zealand films they're mainly financed outside new zealand i believe but here's the crux way they are mainly shot with an entire new zealand cast they are shot in new zealand so, are we New Zealand, Wayne? What, what are you going for? New Zealand, American, or just a co-production? What are you, what are you going for? 
I get that. I guess the New Zealand argument comes from, like you say, the cast and the yeah. crew. The fact it was all shot in New Zealand as well. Like I've actually been to Hobbiton, where the Shire scenes were right. filmed. It's in the north. It's in the North Island of New Zealand. It's a fantastic place there. That was purpose built for the Lord of the Rings films. After they finished, it started falling apart, so they tore it all down, only to have to build it again for the Hobbit films, <laughs> which came about ten years later. But I would say very New Zealandy films. Peter Jackson, we've spoke about with bad taste, which for me. I think that was one of the most fun films that we covered, that bargain basement, doing everything on a shoestring, let's just get your friends together kind of thing. But Peter Jackson, if you were to speak to someone about New Zealand filmmakers, I would say the four biggest names I came up with are Peter Jackson, Taika Waititi, Jane Campion, and Martin Campbell. I didn't even know Martin Campbell was a Kiwi (laughs) until doing research for this episode. Could you mention Jane Campion? Because her film, The Piano, starring, of course, Mm. Holly Hunter and Harvey Keitel, eight Oscar nominations. It won three, Best Actress for Holly Hunter, Best Supporting Actress for Anna Paquin, and Original Screenplay by Jane Campion herself. Now, did you ever see the Jane Campion TV show, Top of the Lake? That was set in New Zealand as well. That was a terrific little thriller. I didn't actually watch them, but The Piano, back in 1993, really bringing prestige to the New Zealand uh, cinema. And she's doing it now. She had, two years ago, I believe it was, The Power of the Dog. Great film. Another film which which I believe was mostly set in, uh, mostly shot in New Zealand. Obviously, it was a yeah. Western, but it was shot in New Zealand, I think, during like the COVID pandemic. Another one of those films that's very much bringing like, kind of artistic merit to the fore in New Zealand cinema and, and showing it to the world. Funnily enough, that's a very... Div- you wouldn't think that would be a divisive film, but it's almost got this disconnect between critics and audience i know half of an audience very weren't much into that and i think you were possibly one of them i really liked it i thought it was taut it was thematic i really liked power of the dog you weren't so keen i didn't love it i still liked it i very much liked how it was willing to go that kind of gritty way that paired back way not jumping into things that kind of angly pacing that it went for and i think campion did a fantastic job covering that the bleakness of the landscape when we spoke about aussie exploitation movies that's what you look at the bleakness the emptiness just the barrenness of the landscapes and that's what campion really captured in that film so you're saying the piano is not much at all like bad taste <laughs> no. <laughs> so you're saying we're in completely I, different New Zealand ballparks here to use an American. I phrase. don't think those films could be anywhere further on the opposites of but, the spectrum. But I love bad taste. I love the piano. But here's the well. one, right? What are you going for? You're bored at night, Wayne. It's midnight. You can't sleep. You're like, oh my god, I'm putting something on the TV. You've got bad taste and you've got the piano. Who are you going for? What are you choosing? It's got to be bad taste, man. Those people were murdered by some real arseholes. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist bad taste in a choice. Denim like clad aliens, man. Denim clad <laughs> aliens. They're fantastic. And then we should got to talk about Martin Campbell, of course, who directed like The Legend of Zorro. He pretty much brought James Bond from back from the brink twice because he did Goldeneye, then he did Casino Royale. You've got Taika Waititi, who obviously worked with Marvel with the Thor Ragnarok, Love and Thunder. Also, Jojo Rabbit was another great film. I know we're not strictly talking New Zealand films here, but we're talking New Zealand filmmakers and these very unique voices which are coming out of the country. I don't think I've seen a Waikiki film. I've, I've, not, I've never seen Jojo's Rabbit. I've never seen a Thor film, so... I would recommend Jojo Rabbit. It's the kind of satirical look at Hitler and the Nazis, similar to how, like, the great dictator was, doing it in a comedic way, making Hitler look like an idiot, rightfully so. But that's what that film was going for. And Sleeping Dogs, the subject of today, you could argue a lot of these films don't exist or don't come about without Sleeping Dogs because 
that's what led to, essentially, the success of Sleeping Dogs led to the creation of the New Zealand Film Commission in 1978. I went on their website. They now endeavour to fund roughly 10 to 12 films a year. So Sleeping Dogs was kind of the impetus for that. Right, this is a 1977 film, and the New Zealand Film Commission was set just a year later in 1978. Now, I was looking to put context into this film, Wade. What were some of the key moments in film in 1977? Now, let's look at this, right? We have Annie Hall, Star Wars A New Hope, A Razorhead, Suspiria, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, House, the Japanese film... Saturday Night Fever, Sorcerer, which is going through like a phase at the moment by William Friedkin. I mean, that's a great year, but it's also uh, quite an important year because you could almost class 1977 and also in that year is Scorsese's New York, New York. It's almost the downfall of the New Hollywood period, and it's kind of transitioning into what would become the 80s. I mean, we've got the Spielberg, big Spielberg film, Scorsese with a bloated budget, which failed at the box office. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a transformative year, 1977. Some of these films, they were like the death knell for the New Hollywood movement moving into the studio system. Was it some time ago you discussed, I think you said that something like 1989, or was it 1979? I think it was 79, one of the best years for films. But 77 I always go to because all those films you mentioned all came out in one year. And it's incredible watching a film like Sleeping Dogs because this is the other side of the world. But it still feels to me, Sleeping Dogs does feel like a kind of new wave product, that unfiltered, very artistic vision, doesn't feel like it was muddled about by any kind of studio interference. It fits right along with films by like your Maliks and your Scorsese's and your Spielberg's and your Francis Ford Coppola's. Absolutely, Wayne. And I think that is down to Roger Donaldson, the director of this, and having a low budget. You need a good idea, a relative low budget. And if you have it, that's the, that's the key thing when you have a low budget, Wayne, a good idea. Execution is a part of it, but it's the idea that counts. Now, This film is based on Smith's Dream by C.K. Steed. Now, he's apparently one of New Zealand's most famous writers. I've got to say, I've never heard of the man. Neither did I, unfortunately. No, but Donaldson (laughs) said, right, about this film, he says, I've been wanting to make movies for a long time. Ian Moon, the co-writer of this film, and one of the co-leads, he plays Bullen, he says, he and I went to Europe in June of last year, so that'd be 76. While I was there, I went to the Cannes Film Festival. And I saw a lot of movies, which I thought were a load of crap. And I thought we can do as good as that in New Zealand. And with that thought in mind, I came back determined that if I couldn't get a movie off the ground within six months in New Zealand, I'd go elsewhere and try to make one. You don't care. Fuck it. I'm doing this. I'm following this idea. If we can't get it made here, we're going elsewhere because I've got a solid idea. I've got a solid source material in C.K. Steed's Smith's Dream novel. Let's do it. Well, that's the whole attitude that really embodies the new Hollywood movement. You had all these new people, all these upstarts, these renegades who thought, right, I've got a story to tell, and by hell or, come hell or high water, I'm going to tell that story. Anything else be damned. And Donaldson's gone on to have a pretty interesting career because Sleeping Dogs was his directorial yep. debut, but he's gone on to do quite a variety of films. He did like Cocktail, the Tom Cruise film, Species, that alien in, that alien film with Natasha Henstridge, Dante's Peak, the volcanic eruption film which had Pierce Brosnan, and then The World's Fastest Indian with yeah, Anthony yeah. Hopkins playing Burt Monroe who set that famous record. It's just such an interesting breadth of work that he's done. Which is weird. You mentioned Cocktail, for example, Dante's Peak. I never really considered who directed them. Do you ever get a film that is that big and not much of a blockbuster type of film that you you don't even really divulge into who, who made this? 
It just seems like a tent peg film where it's like, all right, there's the star of the film and that's it. Like Top Gun, for example. Well, Dante's Peak was actually a favorite of mine as a kid. I loved watching that. My sister and I watched that over and over again. And then I'm doing research. I'm like, oh, it was Donaldson who did that. <laughs> uh, okay, because I can't say I like that film, but I can't say it's in any way you'd look at it and think... I mean, you can look at a Wes Anderson film. We spoke yep, about him in yep. the submarine. You can look at a Wes Anderson film, know nothing about it, and say that was directed by Wes Anderson. But Dante's Peak, not knocking it here, but it did feel like it was directed like your kind of standard, like you say, tentpole summer blockbuster. It's quite funny you say that, and that kind of plays into because you know some people are critical of the whole auteur theory. Some people believe it can make a director samey, you know, to be simple, mm. but. And I think there is some cachet in that because Donaldson, for example, he made Day's Cocktail, Dante's Peak, White Sands with Mickey Rourke. Yet because they're spanning such a wide genre and a different stylistic approach, you don't necessarily see the through line in the director and you kind of kind of dismiss them. You're like, oh, they're just a hired gun, for example. And the New Zealand films, because we talk about Donaldson here doing a film like this, which is you may say, maybe kind of bleak, kind of downbeat film. When you look at classic New Zealand films, the most characteristic ones, it tends to be horror comedies, interestingly. We have Bad Taste and Brain Dead from Peter Jackson, Black Sheep from Jonathan <laughs> King, and there's like What We Do in the Shadows from Taika Waititi. It's like New Zealand has kind of cornered the market in using their landscape because Black Sheep, it's all jokes about it, there's nothing but sheep in New Zealand and you've got this mutated breed of them. So these are films which are being born out of the kind of landscape and the culture at the time, like with Ausploitation, you think of the barren wastelands, you think of the deserts, you think of hard-drinking, tough men out, out in the outback. In New Zealand, New Zealand is quite close to Australia, but it's completely different. Like culturally, the landscape's completely different. So they're very different films coming out of that country. Absolutely. And a lot of people do say New Zealand and Scotland share many similarities. And I imagine mm. half of that is the quantity of sheep. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of sheep, man. <laughs> There is also the landscape as well. When I was in New Zealand, I heard people constantly refer to New Zealand as Scotland on steroids, which is true because we have, you know, the Highlands and the Cairngorms, of course. In in New Zealand, you have bigger mountain ranges. You have, you know, the mountain peaks that Edmund Hillary used to climb before he went on to summit Everest. So these are like very characteristic aspects of the, the country and their culture. So let's discuss who is the star of this film, Wayne. The star is none other than <laughs> Sam Neill. Now, he's had an interesting career. Most people, of course, will know him from Jurassic Park, and you wouldn't be amiss, remiss with thinking that. But, I mean, this is a great film. This is a great film, I'm going to say. Zolowski's Possession, where he starred alongside Isabella Arjani. Now, that is a great film. That's one of the best horror films of, you know, that period, the 70s, 80s. It kind of got overlooked. It's kind of coming back in, in many ways like Friedkin's Sorcerer, in the way it's kind of been reevaluated, reappreciated. But here's the the span of his career. he done Possession, for example, The Hunt for Red October, Jungle Book, Jurassic Park, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, and to bring it back to New Zealand, The Hunt for the Wilder People. Yeah, the Taika Waititi film. He has had a very interesting career. I'll admit, being a child of the 90s, Jurassic Park was the first thing I ever seen him in. And then every time from then when I see him, it's like, oh, it's the Jurassic <laughs> Park guy. But he has had quite a career. I know my sister, for example, she watched The Tudors. Yeah. Uh, he played a character in that. I can't remember which one now. But he was apparently great in that. He loved making that. One film of his, I Love, which always gets overlooked, never gets talked about. I was wondering if you'd bring it up. Is a film called Dean Spanley. Never seen it. Kind of a low budget, not very well-known comedy. He basically plays the dean of this university or dean of this church who believes that in his past life he used to 
be a dog. And he meets the person who owned that dog. So there's kind of a weird connection oh. between them. Very offhand, very quirky film. That was the 2000s. I mean, it was the noughties, 2008, 2009, maybe. So this is this wasn't early experimental Sam. This was this was aging Sam who who's taken a risk. <laughs> this is this is you know I've done everything I need to build myself up. I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want now. That was an interesting one. And then the Mouth of Madness yeah, you mentioned. And Event Horizon is also getting reevaluated. Yeah. I know it was a horror film which got a lot of flack back in the day because it felt very sanitized. I know there was like an uncut, like director's cut, which people said wasn't much better, but it at least felt it went all the way with what it was trying to do. It didn't feel watered down or sanitized. Do you ever feel with film, you know, the way we look at it now, because we're, everybody is, needs content 24-7, it's almost like there... This is what I always say, Wayne. There is no bad films anymore. There's just a 20-year waiting gap. Everything will be reappraised. We're not because everything has to be accessible. When we talk about... We talk about a lot of cult films on this podcast, and that's the thing with cult films is they didn't do well at the time for whatever reason, but years later, people look back and they say they were misunderstood. They just came out at the yeah. wrong time. They came out under the wrong climate. Audiences didn't understand what they were going for. So many of these films do get reappraised. It's very rare that a bad film is allowed to be a bad film forever. A lot of them do get reevaluated. <laughs> is there any on. films you hate so much that you th- <laughs> that you just think, yeah, that's fucking awful. Don't reappraise that, please. Well, Monster Agogo, which we've spoken <laughs> about before. <laughs> but some films like that, they were made on micro budgets. You can't blame them too much. I mean, I still do because I hated oh, those films. I still watch them. But for a lot of yep. a lot of the time, it's good a lot of these films do get reappraised because they didn't necessarily get big box office. It's not a new phenomenon. I mean, Wizard of Oz is a highly acclaimed film that did yeah. badly at the box office. So a lot of these films do get reappraised, and yeah, it's usually for the best. Now, here's something interesting. Before you mention James Bond, right? Now, this is something I wasn't sure about until research, okay? When Roger Moore was ageing, and they needed a, somebody to succeed him as James Bond, one of the main people's names who came up for this was Sam Neill. Now, I did not know this. Of course, he lost that, lost out to Timothy Dalton, now, if Sam Neill had got this, he would not have been the first non-UK person to play Bond, because famously, mm. Australian George Lazenby would play Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now, I let's uh, I, I really like Sam Neill. I think he's a brilliant lead in this. I think he's brilliant in possession. I can't really picture him as Bond, to be honest. I'm not, I'm not so sure, but that little tidbit, I did pick up with that in research yeah. as well. I know that, yes, Lazenby was an Australian who did Bond. I did read that some actors, for example, like Clint Eastwood and Burt yeah. Reynolds, for sure, were both offered Bond, but they turned it down. Their reason being, they feel they should always be played by a Brit. Obviously, Lazenby wasn't a Brit, but when they were offered it, that was their head of thought at the time. I don't think George Lazenby liked being Bond either, because he was quite countercultural. And coincidentally enough, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, is kind of tonally different to a lot of other James Bond films. It's actually kind of meta as well, because I'm sure, is there not one point where he's in the middle of a mission, and he turns to the camera, he turns to someone and says, this didn't happen with the other villain? So it it's almost the closest the Bond franchise got to actually being Austin Powers back in the day. Now, this production, Wayne, you know, we're working with a low budget. This is New Zealand. This is prior to the film commission. Now, they weren't dumb. This production knew, knew to attract attention, much like road games. They had Stacey Keach. They had Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, this production, they knew, okay, we need an international star to make this a more marketable film. Well, the production, they... Look towards Jack Nicholson for the role of Colonel Willoughby. Now, here's what I'm going to say to you, okay? They approach Jack Nicholson, his agent. They offer him 
$5,000. Okay, his agents scoffingly rejected this. Jack Nicholson doesn't get out of bed for 5K, does he? No, he doesn't. But but I think it's almost happy stance because the role ended up going to the terrific Wayne from our Mm. very own episode, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Warren Oates. Now, they thought of him after enjoying his performance in Dillinger, where he played John Dillinger, and to coax him, you know, this is five measly thousand dollars for an actor. Okay, Warren Oates, he's probably got a drink problem, maybe a bit of a drug problem. He could do with a 5K regardless, but they also they also offered him, you know, they said, look, you come to New Zealand, you enjoy this 5,000, but it's also a working holiday. You get to go on all these exotic locations. And Warren Oates was like, okay, I'm not turning down an exotic trip. To be fair, if you offered me $5,000 on a trip to New Zealand, I would take it as well. But he did that. He said, Warren Oates said, anytime anyone wants me to go somewhere exotic, I'll go. You talk about it being offered to Jack Nicholson. We're talking 1977-76 here. Nicholson's done Easy Rider. He's done The Last Detail. He's done five easy pieces. He's won his Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 5,000 is not going to cut it. 1965 Jack Nicholson, (laughs) maybe. Is is that there Roger Corman, uh, Jack Nicholson? (laughs) Yeah, that's bargain basement kind of thing. That's like when he was doing Little Shop of Horrors. But I like the fact that when they went to him, I went to his agent... I think it was the agent that actually recommended Warren Oates and got him in. He plays, he does play a very distinctive part. I like the fact that he turns up in the film with a piece of paper which actually yep. had the script on it because he didn't have time <laughs> to memorise his lines. But it's great because he used it like a cue. He used it like it was a military order and he worked that in. So, yeah, Warren Oates in this film. I remember seeing a screenshot for him as Dillinger. He looks eerily similar to him. More so than Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. He he looked absolutely nothing like him. Public Enemies, wasn't yeah, public, it? I didn't mind that Michael Mann film. He was okay. He was very uh, handheld and shaky, which didn't necessarily need to be like that. But yeah, it was quite cool. What do you think of it? Uh, it was okay. I don't remember it being anywhere near like remarkable or anything. I thought Depp was okay in the role, but for the most part, I thought it felt pretty typical, to be honest. <laughs> now, Wayne, I have got to say, okay, this film has such such a terrific opening now i don't know why i don't know why it is right i have a very much a fondness for films that incorporate you know fic- fictional news footage into their stories whether that's by through radio tv stations just think of robocop with all them advertisements on the tv i love it oh, for, for ocp yeah, i love it for, for some <laughs> reason it always you know it tickles the brain somehow but this opening sequence is so terrifically done okay we have a domestic situation. The father and mother are splitting up. He is moving out the house. His kids have made him a little present to, you know, go off on his way. But on the TV in the background, we're also setting this up because on the, the prime minister on the TV is setting up the tone of this film. There's these riots going on. There's an oil shortage. There's strikers. It's union action. And the government are striking back against the union strikers. And the prime minister says... The government will not be held to ransom. If strikes continue, we'll be prepared to meet force with force. And I think that sums this film up terrifically in that opening sequence, in that opening scene with the domestic situation. We have the Prime Minister spewing that. And not only that, Smith, played by Sam Neill, as he's fucking off out of his family home, Bullen turns up in his car. Well, it's it does so well because it sets up essentially two of the central conflicts in the film. You have Smith with his family and with Bullen, and then Smith with, for all intents and purposes, the kind of government and the rest of the country. And I like how it's done pretty much entirely through expressions. There's almost no words. No one says anything because the whole idea is 
Smith's wife has been cheating on him with Bullen. That's never stated. It's just kind of, it's more implied. It's kind of hanging there. You find out more about yeah. it later on. But it very much sets the tone for the film. You have all this, you have these people in this house, Smith, his wife, his kids, all of whom look kind of despondent. Like, they're not really sure what to do. And I think with the news footage, you often use the word contextualize. That's what these fake news footage do. They're a good way of setting up what's happening in the film. Like, I know with Robocop, it was done as a kind of like wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of thing. It was a satire on commercialism as well, in in Robocop. It kind of shows how many uh, facets of life and how many industries they were dominating. But in this, it's setting up what's going to be a lot of the backdrop of this film. There's a very much tonal shifts throughout this entire film. And Sam Neill himself, when he was asked about this film, he says it's very bleak, but it's also very uneven. That's what he said in hindsight about this film. And I kind of see that. I kind of see that. It seems almost out of context. There's a scene of a brutal massacre later in the film. And then the next scene, for example, will be him playing on a bike with his wife or former wife, I suppose. Yeah, there are some very jarring tonal shifts. There's a scene where we have Smith who's living on this island, which is called Gut Island. Basically, he's <laughs> gone away from his family. He's renting it from like the local Maori chief and he's living on this island. Everything's good. He's been, he's caught some fish. He's walking to his house. It's all very happy. Smash cut to a bunch of protesters being beaten <laughs> at one of these demonstrations, one of these protests. So there are very jarring shifts. I think it was done to demonstrate, contrast Smith's situation with what's going on in the rest of the world, because Smith is living this very idyllic life. It's maybe not exactly the life he wanted, but he's making the best of it now, and he really wants nothing to do with what's going on in the rest of the country. He only really gets his updates through talking to people on the mainland or listening to this illicit army radio as we discover later on i do like when he get how how he gets to gut island the island of, of serenity in his eyes okay he goes to this mulberry fella because apparently they own the island now he drives up and says in, inquires about this island and the mulberry says i'll swap you my boat for your car and smith's like i've played th- three thousand bloody dollars for that car and, was like, <laughs> <laughs> and even before he's accepted this okay the mulberry has about five kids right they're crawling all over Smith's car. And the Maori has the cheek way, the cheek, to say to his kids, get off of my car. <laughs> That's presumptuous, you have to I, I, say. Now, you you mentioned this about Smith being borderline idyllic situation where he's on this island. Okay, what is this trying to say thematically? In many ways, I thought, okay, he's apathetic. He's apolitical. He's not choosing sides. In many ways, it is a discussion on individuality, Wayne. Because you've got to remember, this is 77. To contextualise that into the United Kingdom and Ireland, we had the so-called Troubles, you know, the IRA, the Unionists, etc., etc. So we had all this strife in America, maybe just a few years prior. You had, for example, the Black Panther Party. You had the Weatherman Underground. You had all these, these groups, Wayne. It was almost, you know, chose the resistance in terms of being a group. Now, Smith is not part of the resistance and he is not part of the government. He is a complete individual. Now, one of the films I thought watching this, where does that strike with? And bizarrely enough, because it's kind of seen as a hippie classic, so you think it has a collectionist kind of mantra, but Easy Rider, Easy Rider, because that is all about searching for the American dream. And what is the American dream but individual freedom? Now, Captain America in that film, Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, they go out on their motorbikes for a cocaine deal. This is the setup of that film. It's, just, it's literally a cocaine deal to be awarded this money to set up their financial future because to them, financial security. I know it sounds very... Con- 
conventional, but financial conformity is um, liberating. And I think with Smith, that's kind of the same thing. It's the individuality he's looking for rather than any kind of group politically. I think so, because this is very much a man alone story because you have this one Smith guy here who's trying to set himself kind of apart, like away from society. He always says he wants nothing to do with this. He's not a fighter. He's not a negotiator. The first line in the trailer, which is like a narrated line, it says, what happens when an ordinary man is pushed to his limit? Now, I don't know if this is just on modern sensibility, what we've seen from films like John Wick or maybe Rambo or something like this, but you would assume that was the setup for some kind of revenge flick. You would think this guy's going to get pushed to his limit he's going to go onto this island it's going to turn out he's ex-CIA or he's ex-MI5 and he's going to arm himself up he's going to do like an Arnold Schwarzenegger he's going to cut everybody down but no this film is all about him trying to avoid that trying to stay as far away as he could I don't know if modern movies have just attuned us to this idea that the man alone has to be the one fighting against everything rather than trying to get away from it yeah, you had Rambo. Yes. That was a long time ago. Is that what caused this? Could be. Well, Rambo was, I think, 70... First Blood, yeah. Yeah, it was... Was it 79-ish? I think about 78, maybe, the late 70s. So we're talking around about this time. But I think that's what kind of put us on this path to having this man alone thing. But for Smith, this is his attitude. It's not wanting to choose a side. You say about having all of these groups. It's that mentality of you're with us or against us. So yeah, you can join this group because you yeah. agree with them, but that puts you at odds with this group. And this group will say, why aren't you in our group? Because this group do this. It's that group mentality. He's broken away from that. He's looking for this individual life. Now, I don't know if it's I fell down the rabbit hole of YouTube videos containing <laughs> cabin builds, self-sufficiency, and forestin. But when he got to the island, I was like, yes! And then I, and then I was followed by, oh, shit, because he's like on, on the island on his own for like 10 minutes. I was looking forward to like loads of great island scenes. Oh, he was going to be like putting up a tree house and he was going to be like so. making his own oven and stuff like or, that. Or protecting. I thought they were going to come to the island. Obviously, they could come to the island, take him away, imprison him. But I thought there was going to be like a lot of resistance, him and the loan on his island. I was kind of disappointed by that way. He does have this kind of self-sufficient lifestyle because yeah. he'll go to the island, he'll, he's will he got a dog with him, he'll go and he'll like, catch fish. He's kind of trying to live off, you'd say he's trying to live off the grid, for example. Yeah. And it, it really brought this, this question up that he's trying to lead this peaceful life on this island. How possible is that in a country that's essentially so divided and so hostile, a country that's tearing itself in two? How long could he live here? Like, how long could he hope to escape from the forces that are encroaching upon him? Well, you could almost argue as well, thematically, that brings into the question, can you be an innocent bystander and not take a side when a country is falling into the throes of fascism, for example? Does it become the moral duty to take the resistance side? The question is, do you get involved and risk causing harm or further damage, or do you pull back and then you risk bad things happening through your own inaction? That's an interesting point. It's an interesting point. It's one I never really considered either because for me, Smith's being apathetic, him being withdrawn, that was kind of like his whole character. He wanted to be out of things. He wanted to be away from things. It's these situations were forced on him because as a rebellion is going on in New Zealand at the time, he becomes this kind of iconic figurehead for the rebellion despite wanting absolutely nothing to do with it. Well, he becomes the figurehead because when he's in the, at this island, he meets a guy called Cousins. Mm -hmm. Now, Cousins is pretty much an elder fisherman who just sits on the dock in the bay all day Wayne. <laughs> Otis Redden would love that. Whistling, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but 
Smith goes to him, you know, yeah, I'm living here, I'm self-sufficient, I would, I would like a gun, probably to hunt, probably to hunt just. So Cousins doesn't like this. We find out Cousins has a stash of weapons on this little island. He doesn't like this, he thinks it's an encroachment on his his rebellion, so to speak. So he set he sets Smith up, he puts a gun in his boat, and this draws the ire of the authorities. The authorities come for him, they catch him on his own island, take him away. I think the... The authorities at this point are called the specials. Mm-hmm. There is different grades to them. These are mainly the specials. So the specials take him away. They imprison him. Now, the shots of Smith in prison, for me, they are some of the best shots in this entire film. They are so excellently crafted. There's a lot of darkness and light. And I think that's playing a lot of the themes of this film is the dualities, the juxtapositions, the the dark, the light, the moral, the amoral, take a stand, don't take a stand. Now, I think in a lot of ways that does mirror the film. And I should highlight, because the cinematography is so great, especially in these prison scenes, the cinematography is by the great Michael Saracen. Now, why are them prison scenes so great? Well, he would also be the DP on Midnight Express. He would also work on The Great Angel Heart, starring Mickey Rourke. And if you want to look for newer films, he done the latest Planet of the Apes films. And he is also a New Zealander. Oh, there you go then. I wasn't the biggest fan of the new Planet of the Ape films, but they do look beautiful. They do have fantastic cinematography. And I'm glad you mentioned those prison scenes because there's a great little detail in here that I looked up. You can see as Smith is sitting with his beard, the Grizzly Adams look that he's rocking, someone has written on the wall, Kilroy was here. Which now, I know is, what you mean, you yeah, tell us. Which is not only like kind of a little in-joke, it's also a piece of foreshadowing, which I don't think we've said for a while, but Kilroy was here was something that American, say American soldiers, GIs, yep. if they were captured somewhere, that's the kind of thing that they would put on the wall of their prison cell or where they were being detained. Because yep. it was a good way when other people were there, the new Americans had been imprisoned there. So it's a great little detail. And it also does foreshadow the entry of Warren Oates and his team later <laughs> on, because Warren Oates is playing an American in this. He's got this American army with him. So it kind of foreshadows his entry into the film later on. Can I just say to you, I am still confused about them Warren Oates showing up. Mm-hmm. Not the actor. What the fuck was he doing there? Why was the American guy involved? Well, I think it was because the book itself has... The book was published in 1971, and it contains obvious parallels with the Vietnam War. Right. I didn't know this before, but watching the film, I thought, uh, yeah, there is some kind of correlation there. Because if you think, you've got this foreign country miles and miles away. In the Vietnam War, of course, it was North and South Vietnam. And then you had an American force which were brought in, because obviously, back then, because America, you know, heavily anti-communist, and they had to come in to fight... The, the communist NVA. So the American army came into this country. So that for me is the foreshadowing of Kilroy was here. It foreshadows the American army coming along. The fact that the government have called this this foreign army in to actually help them maybe shows that they're actually quite worried they're not going to win against the rebels. They're not actually going to defeat them. Now, I like how you mentioned the communists because I do have a quote, another quote from the prime minister of this film. He said, no longer will we be intimidated by the thugs wishing to plunge this country into anarchy. No longer will we pander to the communists, subversives and other radicals wishing to destroy established law and order. This organised campaign of terror will not be allowed to go on unchecked. Now, all this rabble-rousing, all this, you know, fascistic leanings, Wayne, it kind of brought into mind a film I'm not so keen on, but you love V for Vendetta. 
And I thought you were probably drawing them illusions as well, were you? I was. When you said that speech there, everything you said there, where have we heard that before? Yeah. Pretty much every dictator you've ever heard of. I was looking at, you get like Romania under Nikolai Ceausescu, Libya under Colonel Gaddafi. The way they talk, any kind of uprising, any challenge to their authority is dealt with with, these are rebels, these people are trying to destroy your country. Because the government, in this case, they have the benefit of numbers. They have the benefit of mass media. Any kind of rebellion, they can come out and say, these people are bad, these people are out to destroy the country. There's one line in this that I love. While those demonstrations are going on, while the specials, we'll get to them afterwards, while they're you know beating the protesters, we hear uh, one of the specials yell, this is an illegal demonstration. They can declare any demonstration to be illegal, yep. and you would have to go along with it because they're the authority, they're the people who are in charge. Who's going to argue against them? The rebels are fighting, but they're getting their asses kicked. So who are right. you going to side with exactly. in this situation? It's something the government is bound to say something like that. And you raised the question of Smith becoming this almost figurehead for the resistance, but he almost in many ways becomes a figurehead for the government, and I'll tell you why, okay? When he is esca- when he's getting transferred from prison to somewhere else, he manages to escape from the paddy wagon, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And he he makes himself throw up, spews on the copper, gets out of the van and legs it. He runs off. This leads him to becoming a figurehead for the resistance because it shows man's willingness and ability to you know defeat the powers that be, and he becomes a figurehead for the government because. His capture would be a symbolic defeat of the resistance. So he becomes, even though he is apolitical, which we have stated, he is apathetic to this situation. He he just wants to fuck off to Gut Island. (laughs) But he has become this man in the middle that has become vastly important. And because he's been adopted by both sides and used as their figurehead, the kind of way to glorify them and say, well, unite behind these people. But I mentioned specials before. What we're talking about when we say specials, they are essentially the military force of the government because martial law is declared in this film. Yeah. And when you think of the kind of military police, you think Stalin's NKVD or like maybe Hitler's Gestapo, who are these groups of people that have essentially unlimited power. You the talk, KJB? Exactly. You talk in yeah. Stalin's uh, Russia like disappearances. People who were against the regime, people who were dissenters, protesters, instigators, agitators, they were simply disappeared. And here, I mean, you have Smith thrown in that prison cell. They want him to confess, and then they're just going to throw him out of the country. So they just want rid of him. They can capture anybody they want on completely trumped up charges. They can basically do anything they want, as long as it some way benefits them. And again, who's going to argue with them? Now, can we discuss Ian Mewden for a bit, who plays... Now, he's been having an affair with Smith's wife. Now, this is why Smith is leaving his household. He is kind of a subversive character in a way, because as Smith points to him some way, he calls him a right-wing twat. (laughs) But what we figure out with Bullen is he's actually quite high up in the resistance. So I think... it's kind of suggested he's working within the government, but he is subversively going against them. It's kind of like a double agent or triple agent kind of thing. Yeah. And that's what one thing I do like about this film. You meet all these characters throughout. You're never sure what side anybody's on. Is someone just telling you something you want to hear? You never know which way anyone's going to go. There's a character called Buck who owns this hotel because yeah. once Smith is found, like, right, we need you to get to this safe house. Because if you die, maybe morale among the rebels is going to drop. So he right. goes and hides out and works at a place called Buck's Hotel, which is not doing very well, shall we say. 
<laughs> it's not a good time for a holiday in New Zealand. I, I think Buck's a bit of an alcoholic as well. I'm pretty sure he is, yes. <laughs> Interestingly, something I came across, you know when we, in school when you study novels, you'll get like study guides. You'd get it for like Great Gatsby or yeah, something yeah. like Lord of the Flies or Catcher in the Rye. I found a study guide for sleeping dogs. I'm guessing this is for film students. And it asks students to do interesting things like write diary entries as Smith, design a newspaper front page describing events. This is what I liked. R- write a review of Buck's Hotel. <laughs> I suggest two stars, fairly basic, loses points for the army presence, very difficult to get a good night's sleep, would not recommend. That would be my review of Buck's Hotel. <laughs> and in the middle of the night, a uh, Bullen may appear. <laughs> <laughs> I do like how Warren Oates' character, he's only in this for a very short amount of time. That's the 5,000. <laughs> he, was, he was paid by the second. Yes. But him coming in, this idea of these international forces that have been brought in, they don't get on very well, him and Smith. There's a lot of antagonism between them. I mean, it leads to a gunfight, but I do love the way Warren Oates plays this very antagonistic, very kind of war-weary character who could dispatch Smith if he wanted to. It would be no problem whatsoever. But he stays around as kind of an antagonistic presence. Warren Oates is, always has that great presence about him. He always looks world-weary. Mm-hmm. He did he did in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. That, that, that's a man who looks like he saw some shit. <laughs> I think it's all the work with Sam Peckinpah, to be fair. <laughs> that's, that's what whiskey and cocaine does to people. But you said a gunfire ensues, and why does that? Okay, whilst Smith is here, there's a young lady he kind of strikes up a relationship with, but Bullen comes in through the middle of the night, like he always does, partly. Just ask uh, Smith's wife. <laughs> <laughs> so Bullen came, and he says, look, at one o'clock press the alarm. That's all you've got to do. At one o'clock, press the alarm. And Smith's like, no, I'm not pressing the fucking alarm. So Balin and him kind of a confrontation. Balin pisses off. So we're not sure what's going to happen. One o'clock comes. Smith's looking at that alarm, Wayne. He's looking. He keeps looking. He keeps looking. Okay, he presses it, but he presses it on, quickly switches it off. Balin and his men are out there, lying in the ground, waiting to shoot at Warren Oates and his men. So Bullen's like, okay, what's happening? The alarm has just came on, suddenly gone off. And then we're like, okay, he's backed off. Smith, you know, he's apolitical. He's not really wanting to be involved with this. But no. Second later, that alarm comes on. It stays on. Warren Oates and his men come out. They're standing there fully wondering what's going on. They're saying to Warren Oates, did you press the alarm? No, I never pressed the damn (laughs) alarm. Maybe, you know, it's Buck. Maybe Buck's got pissed and pressed the alarm by accident. <laughs> but that is an indicator of him taking sides. He presses that. That's not just turning alarm on. Right. That is aligning himself with the rebels. If he does this, he is complicit in this. So it shows he is not picking sides. The sides are essentially being chosen for him. He's been browbeaten into taking a certain position. It's like in a situation like this with these two extremes, you can almost never really be centrist. There's really one way you have to go, one way you have I to think be so. pushed. You will be pushed into one direction. I think this comes down to screenwriting as well. Somebody was, if you read any, how to write a screenplay, for example, they always say your your protagonist always has to be directly involved in something. They can't mm. just be successive events that just seem to happen to them. And that film could run the risk of that. And in many ways, it does run that gambit of things just nonchalantly happening to Smith without his direct involvement. But I liked how they made him press it. On his own fruition. I mean, the the screenwriters, they got it into their heads like, all right, fuck, Smith needs to do something. He needs to be the harbinger of something. And I think this, in some ways, in some ways, maybe he just thought he was taking the easy way out, but he does press it. And I think I was like, okay, he's actually directly doing something now. We're talking about a character who is actually directing the plot rather than just getting kind of mixed in among yeah. it. Because he could very be easily be a character who is simply just 
taken from one scene to the next, one place to the next, and kind of directed what to do. But he does become more proactive at this point. You feel like he is kind of being pushed to his limits. He's obviously sick of everything that's happening. He's sick of being constantly caught in the middle of these battles. But him activating this alarm, it's like a symbolic gesture that, okay, I will join this side, I will do this. And because Bullen is fairly high up in the rebel rankings, I guess we'll say. <laughs> rebel but because, rankings? But because he has this antagonism towards Bullen, and he has every right to, it demonstrates just how uneasy his alliance with the rebels is. Can I just mention, though, this is what I was referring to before. Okay, this is essentially a massacre scene. It's a bloody shootout. Many people die. Okay, the next scene after this, it's... Smith meets up with his estranged wife, played by Nevin Rowe. Okay, they have a conversation, how such and such getting on. Scene after that, he's getting a piggyback off her. He's <laughs> getting a backy on the bike with her. And they're just like breezing through the countryside, idyllically. And this is what I'm saying. What is the weird tonal shift? Maybe it's this case of trying to find some comfort, some happiness in a situation that seems just so bleak and so shitty. Because he's just come out of that shootout that was at Buck's Hotel poor buck and now he's yeah, getting a backy he's met up with his ex uh, with his well his strange wife, estranged wife his estranged wife yeah he's Ballin. met up with her so it's <laughs> it's a rare moment of levity in this film i'm not seeing the film is always downbeat no. but the film is quite serious and moments like this they're just little moments of levity to kind of to show that there are kind of little spots of hope throughout all of this chaos what did you think of that would you have liked them to get to a point, you know, he presses the alarm. That would have been a great moment just to continually batter the tension until the to the end of this film. But, you know, it, it builds up tension and it releases it. Builds up tension, releases it. What do you think? Do you think it was out of step? Hypothetically, okay, you're right in this film. Would you have added that scene? The people who write this film obviously know what they're doing. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that. But, I mean, would you have chosen that scene? I don't think I would have. It feels more like that clicking of the alarm, that should be the kind of beginning of the end. That's maybe where it feels like they should begin the kind of escalation into the right. third act. So maybe if, I don't know, if that scene with his wife had been earlier on, so you had that, you had that kind of happy moment, then you have the alarm flick, now you know everything is going to be different after this. Maybe it's just a question of placement, of where the scene should be. I've got to say, I didn't think the wife was the best actress. She didn't have the most compelling character either. I reckon you could almost not have had her coming back into the story. You could just have had Bullen kind of guiding yeah. him. I, w I wonder if it's just because she came back and for a seconds I couldn't remember who she was because <laughs> she's not in the beginning of the film very much, but she comes back like, oh yeah, it's his estranged wife, of course it is. And then she doesn't hang around very long. Now, interestingly within this film, Wayne, there is a lot of riot scenes. You said the juxtaposition between the action of Smith or the inaction of Smith in certain scenes juxtaposed with the the riots on the street, the riots on the news feed, the, the riots what he's listening to on the radio when he's in, on the island. Well, funnily enough, just a few, few years later, in 1981, in New Zealand, there would be the, the Springbok protests. Now, these were protests over the South Africans rugby team's tour of New Zealand and the United States. And if you're wondering, okay, South Africa playing rugby, why, why are we protesting? Okay, this was apartheid South Africa. This, and so these were protesting against the apartheid system in South Africa. Now, funnily enough, funnily enough, there is a picture, Wayne, and this is another happenstance of the novelist C.K. Steed, the writer of Smith's Dream, 
at one of these Springbok protests. He was actually involved in the protest. Right. Yeah. And it actually demonstrates how kind of eerily prescient a film this was because the 70s, I was looking this up, were a difficult time for New Zealand. They had things like high inflation and there was an oil crisis. So it's not like he was just writing a film about the Vietnam War. He was drawing parallels with the own country as well. And you say about that Springbok tour... It brings up the whole question of, does politics have any place in sport? Because, of course, South Africa and New Zealand, rugby is hugely popular, probably the most popular sport in the country. And the Springboks coming to New Zealand for this tour, people were very against it because, obviously, apartheid had made it made South Africa kind of pariah on the world yep, stage. Yep. Even though they were obviously still a great rugby team, people didn't want them the there. The imprisonment of Nelson Mandela, of course. Exactly. And this is what kind of caused it to boil over. C.K. Steed, like you say, he was one of the protesters. Games were shut down. I believe Steed was actually on one of the pitches. I think it was two <laughs> games that had to be shut down. It was a calamitous situation. But this film came out just a few years before that and scenes of protesters in the streets, you know, uh, police riot squads beating people and stuff. That was actually happening only a couple of years later after the film came out. But uh, four years later, it's very prescient. But that it's not, in many ways, it's not, because this film is kind of indicative of the time period it is made in. As we said, all these troubles were going on, you know. People like to get nostalgic, look back at the glory days, ha ha ha. But 60s, 70s, very a tumultuous time. A lot of protests and riots going on. Famously, Sly and the Family Stone album, there's a riot going on. There's another interesting parallel as well, because from 1975 to 84, the Prime Minister of New Zealand was a guy called Robert Muldoon, who said he was going to be the PM for the ordinary bloke. He's a very controversial person. He's regarded as one of those kind of political strongmen. People like like Donald Trump's been called that, or like Silvio Berlusconi, for example, those people who they try to kind of consolidate power under themselves. He's been called a bully. He associated with a lot of bad groups. He was very open about using slurs against like homosexuals and different ethnic groups, for example. He watched this film and he actually organized a private screening for it because he felt the film was a criticism of him. He felt this (laughs) film was aimed at him, which I can really see. But then again, the book was published in 71 before he came to power, so it's probably quite unlikely, but it wouldn't have surprised me if through happenstance he ended up being depicted kind of vicariously in this movie. Many people have regarded this film as futuristic. I, I'm saying I'm going more with alternate reality. What are you going with? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's it's not too far. It's not Mad Max. No, it's not Mad Max. I don't think it kind of goes that far, that far. Of course, it's showing a reality that's kind of twisted, but not too far from what we've seen. We've seen plenty of countries where yeah. demonstrations have broken out. Plenty of countries where the PM, the president, whatever, has tried to repe- repress the the population through violence, through intimidation. It's not far out of reality. And the fact that this did actually happen lends a lot of credence to that as well. And the alarm situation we were talking about, you know, the the massacre of Warren Oates' men, that kind of brings Bolin and Smith into this kind of closer relationship, so to speak. Now, Smith never kills anybody in this film, does he? No, I don't think he actually does kill anybody directly in the film, but he has to form this kind of uneasy alliance with them because he's traveling with Bullen. They're going to, I think it's like a rebel safe house, something like this. You can still feel the reluctance in Smith. He set this alarm off, but he doesn't want to be drawn into this conflict still. And it gets worse because... The net's tightening in on them. You yep. see these New Zealand helicopters. It actually says New Zealand Air Force. On Do you the know side. why that is, Wayne? Because that's actually where they borrowed them <laughs> yes, from. Yes, they borrowed the, <laughs> the military equipment from the military. I imagine it was difficult to make their own helicopters, but... I wonder if they is- knew the subject matter. <laughs> 
Possibly, yeah. <laughs> they were just brought in just randomly. Yeah. But this is what brings them kind of together. They still have this antagonistic relationship, but now they're kind of united in somewhat of a common goal. But what I like is scenes like this, it's just two people. You don't really have a sense of what's happening in the outside world. It's kind of like a microcosm here. Two people against each other, like it's two sides of a country against each other. But Bolin eventually does get injured, Wayne. He does get shot, and it becomes Smith's responsibility to make sure he makes his way to the safe house. So Smith could easily have left Bolin there. He's He doesn't need to stick up for Bolin in, in any way. Bolin has not been good to him in many regards, especially considering Smith's wife situation. But Smith, you know, we say he doesn't take sides, and in many ways he's still not. He's just helping Bolin for the sake of helping Bolin. I don't, he's still not on their side politically. But they're, they're trying to get away from the specials and to this safe house. They almost get cornered by the specials, or they do get cornered by the specials, and there's literally no way to go. It's almost a standoff. Bolin has got his gun, but he is, I would say, dying, and they're behind, got a little coverage in the field away from the specials, and the specials are trying to coax them out, because here's the thing, here's the thing what we were saying about Smith. The specials, especially the head special, still wants Smith alive. Because they know to kill him would be martyrdom in a sense. You know, the, the whole Che Guevara thing, you're more po- powerful dead in many regards because your image lives on and it kind of inspires a resistance. But they don't really want to kill him. So Smith is standing there pretty much when Bolin is dead. He's just standing in the field. He's like, shoot me, just shoot me. And this, again, reminded me of Easy Rider. You know, when we think Easy Rider are riding off into the sunset and, you know, the redneck guys just shoot them off their bikes. Exactly. And there's many parallels to Easy Rider in that regard. And like Easy Rider, I think that ending, it's a a metaphorical death, isn't it? It's the, the death of the pursuit of individual freedom. Or, here's the thing, or so we think, because he does shoot Smith, the special, doesn't he? Now, the special goes up to Smith. He says, I need you alive. But Smith knows he's dead. The the fatal shot has been rung. I know what's going to happen. He doesn't fight this Smith. And he actually, and here's what I think is quite, I think it's the first time Smith makes a stance. He dies with a smile on his face because he knows his death is an act of defiance against those who are trying to defy him. It feels like in his dying moments, he's like, this is going to be one final fuck you exactly. to all the people who have been pursuing him. He's like, he just ends it here. The reason I like this ending, it does have a very new wave. You mentioned Easy Rider yeah. there. It feels like an ending that you know, it's suitably bleak because it fits in with like the tone of the film. I get the feeling if this had been a more studio-handled studio project, I reckon they would have changed that. I don't think they would have had him die. They would maybe at the least have left it ambiguous. But no, I think- no way, no. He, 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 would have, he would have accidentally stumbled on a cache of weapons, <laughs> got the chain of bullets around his shoulders, and shot his way out. <laughs> There would, have been, there would have been a gearing up montage. He would have flicked a hook onto the bottom of one of them helicopters, scaled up, killed the guy flying the helicopter and buggered off to Australia. Yeah, he would have fired a shot at the helicopter, which would have exploded for absolutely no reason. Exactly. It would either have been that or his fate would have been left ambiguous. But they go with this bleak, downbeat ending, which in a way is that saying if you try to rebel against the government, you try to rebel against authority, it will never work out. It's always going to fail. That study guide I told you earlier posited this interesting question. It was... You know, write a short essay discussing this point. Smith is a coward. Is Smith a coward? Oh. All he does in the film, spends all of his time running away, doesn't want to pick sides, doesn't want to stand up for anything, and in the end, he just essentially lets himself be killed. Dies with a smile on his face, but he just lets himself die. 
So do you think Smith is actually a coward in this film? I think that's the important part you just said. I think it, in many ways, Smith is, to a point, a coward. You can say he didn't handle the breakup of his relationship very well because he literally sequestered himself onto a barren island. He would not take a choice in the resistance, even though the authorities have pretty much banged him up in prison and made him the enemy. But importantly this is his his act of defiance and there is a happy ending so to speak now it's not a happy ending in the eyes of the authorities but for smith he dies with a grin and that grin is an act of defiance because he knows the government didn't get what they wanted they wanted him alive they specified they want him alive so it can be a power capture for them it's like look Fuck your resistance. We have your top guy. There's nothing you can do because we'll hunt you down one by one. But they know in death, it's nothing. It doesn't show anything. I do go along with that. The idea that it's a happy ending, this film, what happens to Smith, not because he managed to win the day or because he managed to save everybody, but because he simply didn't give in to his enemies. He didn't give them what he wanted. He's not allowed himself to be held up as some martyr to bolster the government, to demoralize the rebels, whatever. He's kind of gone out on his terms, so to speak. Hypothetically, where do you see the events after this film? Do you think he became a, a, a martyr? Do you think his death brought martyrdom to him? Do you think he became the figurehead of the resistance, whether he wanted to or not? Because we know thematically in this film, in this film, the ending is positive. Smith retains his integrity. He doesn't kill anybody. He never really chooses his side. He dies with a grin on his face. So he's retained his individuality to the end. His smile is a fuck you. But let's hypothetically move. Let's shift gears. Let's say hypothetically after this film, does he become the martyr to the resistance? I think in a way, depending on who he is found by, I think if he's found by the resistance, he would be held as maybe some kind of martyr. If he's held from the government, then his name, his image will be slandered. This was your hero. Look what's happened to him. He died a coward. He did whatever. Maybe they'll even set it up to make it seem like Smith killed Bullen, for example. Right. Truth is power. And how you know, however you want to twist the truth as well. And so you can tell the rebels anything. You can say anything. They don't necessarily have to believe you, but for Smith... I think him being as a symbol of the rebellion is quite interesting because he never wanted to be that in the first place. He's kind of like the reluctant hero. Yep. There's some people who like set out to be the hero, they set out to be the leader. I think with Smith, he kind of more represents what we would be like in that situation. We like to think, oh, you know, yes, I'm going to go off and join the rebels, I'm going to fight, I'm going to take out all of these government scum, etc. But maybe if we were in that situation, we would think, look, I don't want this. I don't want to be involved in this. You go ahead and fight. I'll just stay here. I'll tend to my island. I'll do my fishing. I'll tend to my dog, etc. Do we know, because we've never been through this situation before, do we know, would we be so confident as to say, yeah, I'll be a fighter, or would we just be a smith? Are you watching all them carbon build videos weren't in vain? (laughs) (laughs) I knew knew it was prepping for something. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And this... The film, a film like this, could never be made nowadays in New Zealand. Partly because, like, in realistic terms, because yes. if you think of all of the guns that's in this, that's what really gets me. Because New Zealand has some of the strictest like gun yep. laws in the world, and you see a lot of the weapons they were using. They were banned in New Zealand in 2019 after that shooting in uh, Christchurch. In 1990, there was the Ara Moana massacre, right. where there was massive changes to gun laws then as well. So that shows also how much the country has changed. Like, how would the rebellion work nowadays if these guns were so hard, so restricted? It would actually make it easier for the government to win in that case. 
It would be a resistance of Smiths. <laughs> Basically, yeah, it'd be a whole thing of Smiths, like one gun and a radio hidden on an island somewhere. And, but I did like how the film, it was reflective of the times it was taking place in, in the 70s, when poverty was rife, when you had high inflation, when you had you know high unemployment. You had a PM who was build himself as a man of the people but really wasn't was just kind of a strong strong arm man and how it led to potentially led to situations like this well this is a transitional film in many regards because in hollywood you know the 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 auteur driven new hollywood scene was kind of coming to an end the scorsese new york new york kind of was a flop and a disaster even though it's not a terrible film but it was a homage to the golden age of hollywood musicals etc etc it wasn't the auteur driven you know, likes of a taxi driver. But in many ways, as Hollywood was changing and it was embracing, you know, Star Wars, uh, the Spielberg films, which I'm, uh, I really like the Spielberg films. I'm not dissing Spielberg films, but they become more studio-driven. But elsewhere in the in the film verse, Wayne, we had the permeations of the 80s underground scene. We had, you know, our Sam Raimi's were coming, our Peter mm. Jackson's with Bad Taste were coming. We had Donaldson making this film. I mean... The mainstream may change, for example, but there's always a simmer, simmering in the underground. And I think that's what people always have to gauge. Just because the mainstream changes doesn't mean your favourites will ever change. There's always something there. There's always something coexisting. There's always something to divert yourself away from the trash of mainstream cinema, what it can be. Well, this period in time, end of the 70s, it's kind of almost the end of the the auteur-driven art house cinema into more kind of populist entertainment. Don't want to look at the film like it's a kind of artifact of a bygone era. It's still a great film all these years later. It came out in a big, you know, big time for cinema. I think it's still a great film. I can't say I didn't love the film or anything. It has issues here and there. I didn't think, honestly, the screenplay was fantastic. There are a lot of characters who don't get a lot to do and the whole I think I think the whole idea of Smith not choosing a side I think kind of that's part of the point of the film yep. I don't think it's a point of frustration not no. why can't you go this way why can't you go that way because it makes you think how decisive or indecisive would you be in that situation it, it's a film of individuality and I think that's its overarching theme and I think if you were to make him choose a side it would kind of undervalue what it's trying to say and you're right in that regards and this was a first time watch for both of us I knew a little about it before I watched it and I have to say, I did expect to like it more. I did really like it. I'd say it's a, for me, you know, to put a stupid rating on it, I'd say it's a solid 7.5. <laughs> solid 7.5. Now, I do think there was untapped potential of Smith on his own island. But, uh, yeah, to quote Sam Neill, you know, it's a very bleak film, but it's very uneven also. And I do believe that unevenness kind of, it's to its detriment. Well, it felt similar to me. Have you seen the film The Quiet Earth? That's another... Another New Zealand film, it's a post-apocalyptic film. Man wakes up, he finds out he's one of only like three people left on the planet. I had that same, it was a bleak tone, but it kind of jumped all over the place and it wasn't as good, as satisfying as I wanted to be. But you admire a film like that for taking the risks and being willing to portray it. And I think uh, Sleeping Dogs, it's a very brave film in how it portrays fascism, how it portrays oppression, how it portrays this governmental you know, authoritarianism and how reflective it was of the time period. And not only that, how prescient it was at predicting events that would come not long after. And do you know what's fucked up, Wade? This film ties in with our one next week. Who would have believed that? Who would believe that? Because our one next week is a British coastal film, A Woman on an Island. That's it. We, 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 went, we went from a man alone on an island to a woman alone on her island. It is interesting how these things tie together, isn't it? But for Sleeping Dogs, 
I think I would definitely recommend this film. If you're in any way interested in New Zealand films, it's not like a lot of ones you get nowadays. It's not a horror comedy. It doesn't really have elements of either of those. But I think it's a very well-made film. I'm thrilled more than anything else. I think that it led to this boom in New Zealand cinema, led to the Film Commission, of course. And yeah, I would I would highly recommend watching this one. As do I. And that's it. Our second foray into the world of New Zealand cinema. But for now, I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. Join us next week as we'll discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream.